talking coaching, rowing, and all things sports science. It's The Bro Show with Bill Tate and Rod Siegel. Well, g'day, Rocket. How are we going today? Very good, thanks, Big Lightning. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Uh, looking forward to this. Yeah, this should be a good one. should be an interesting one. What, yeah. uh, what are you up to at the moment? Uh, just about to head away in a couple of days to Hollenbecker and Henley with um, Josh Booth and Josh Dunkley-Smith and Jen Cleary for a little bit of racing through winter as we prepare for some other little activities over, over the preparation in their season off. Very good. So exciting stuff for those guys. They're going pretty well at the moment. Well, they're physically going pretty well. Um, they haven't been doing a lot of uh, on-water stuff, but, but it's been really enjoyable for them, and I feel like for a year off, they're in really good nick. So let's hope we uh, see them firing over this Olympic cycle. Absolutely. And you've got, uh, you're going to take some of those power meters away with them and collect a little bit of data? Yeah, well, we hope to, as long as they work. And that's something we might talk about in a future podcast. But, but yeah, we'll be taking... I think we'll take the NK ones with us. We've, we've had them on, and we'll try and... Uh, collect through the racing there and um, certainly what we collect we'll, we'll post and um, hopefully share with the with the listeners yeah and it's been fascinating getting some feedback on that sort of stuff which we might talk about at the end today a little bit of the feedback and some of the questions that have come through which was which was pretty cool sounds good We've got a big one today, Rodney. This is a very science heavy one I think my um, my finger is going to be hovering over the button quite a bit but um, it's probably one that, that came from you in terms of discussions around you know, flipping a little bit about the way we look at training is to train towards maximising our strengths versus the reason we train is to actually um, mitigate or attenuate the, uh, the things that stop us from continuing to perform well. Um, so I might pass over to you to explain a little bit about what we're going through. Yeah, exactly right. Well, I guess really in, in rowing and in any sport really, it's it's what is, what's limiting your performance that, that slows you down. So it's not necessarily the ability to go fast, but it's the ability to be able to maintain that over the distance. So today we'll talk about what the actual physiological limiters to rowing performance are. Uh, and so we'll go through things like oxygen delivery, uh, oxygen extraction and utilization within the muscle, um, things like muscle acidity, um, force generation, uh, anaerobic capacity, and then the last thing we'll touch on, which is sort of, you know, a little bit more of an unknown, is the, uh, the central fatigue side of things. So how the brain plays a part in all of this from, from an unconscious level. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating way of looking at it. So I, I suppose the framework is we all have our maximum capacity, like the most we could do for one stroke. So why can't we do that for 260 strokes or whatever it might be? And we're going to talk about the things that stop you from performing your maximum the whole way from the first stroke to the last stroke. Yep, absolutely. Very good. So we might get started in uh, into oxygen delivery as our first one. Yeah. So obviously, rowing being an, an aerobic sport predominantly, and some of the testing we've done here, as well as some of the stuff that's out there uh, in the research, will tell you that rowing is roughly, you know, the the energy derived for rowing comes almost exclusively from the aerobic system. It's anywhere from in our testing about seventy five up to about ninety percent aerobic contribution so very very large percentage so ultimately the ability for the body to deliver oxygen to the working muscles that are producing the power for us is really really important yeah and and it's probably been well known sometimes overstated as to to the the um, contribution of a, the aerobic energy system but it's clearly the main thing that we sort of train towards um, uh, 
uh, being able to utilise, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So it's, it's clearly the, the larger contributor. And as you said, I think probably we focus maybe a little bit too much on that and neglect the anaerobic side, which we'll also discuss a little bit later too. Mm. But um, yeah, when we're talking about oxygen delivery, the, the main thing really, sort of the biggest factor that we, that we see is that cardiac output is the most important factor. So when we talk about cardiac output, that's the amount of blood that the heart is able to pump out um, or, or the system is able to pump out per, per minute. Yeah, right. And, and that, that's really the, the true definition of cardiovascular, isn't it? Exactly right. Yeah, exactly. So when we talk about cardiac output, we, we talk about two things. So ultimately, we're talking about heart rate. So how many beats a minute does the, does the heart pump? but then also the stroke volume. So how much volume is blood, of blood is pumped out per, per beat? Yeah. So what are the, what are the factors that, that impact that? So uh, theoretically, you could improve the amount of blood getting around, you know, oxygenated blood getting around your system by increasing your heart rate or increasing the volume per heartbeat that gets pushed or theoretically both, I suppose, is the key. So yep. what, what are we talking about in terms of the type of training that targets um, maximising those two things? Yeah, right. So I guess to take it back one step is how do we get those, um, those increases? So increasing heart rate is pretty sort of a natural thing that occurs, um, you know, and having a max heart rate of 200 beats per minute or whatever it might be, it's not really something that's trainable per se. Um, but what is trainable is... Um, you know how much blood is is actually in the system and how strong your heart is to be able to pump that amount of blood around the system so we talk about things like cardiac size how big is your heart and how big is your left ventricle in particular um, and then we also talk about how much volume of blood do you have in the system so left ventricle the, the heart's made of four chambers the lower ones are the as the ventricles the upper ones are the um, atrial chambers correct correct the atrium uh, and the left ventricle is significant because it does... Well, that's the, the main uh, part of the heart that's pumping the blood throughout into the system. Yeah, so it's the one that pushes the blood, essentially. Yeah, correct, yeah. So to answer your question, what sort of training can we do uh, to enhance that? And, and really, sort of the main thing that we, that we know is that, well, at least the athletes that we see that have very big... Um, you know, left ventricle size and blood volume are the ones that do quite a lot of uh, a volume of aerobic training. So really it, it's a big part of that is just, you know, volume of aerobic, very sort of long, slow, sort of below that aerobic threshold, LT1, as we mm. refer to it, type of training is sort of, I guess, the main thing that you might see to increase that system. Yep. So in, in, terms, of, um, in terms of that, I suppose one of the other factors of it is um, the, the size of the left ventricle, or the, the heart size, the cardiac capacities we've seen in a lot of heavyweight males particularly that they can actually give them health problems as well yeah. in extreme circumstances. Correct. You know, I, I, I myself suffer from that um, as well. And I, I know half a dozen rowers that I've coached that have suffered from it. So clearly the type of training that we do does have an impact on the, on the uh, size of your heart muscle, the, the you know, they call it left ventricle hypertrophy, which mm. is just like, you know, it grows in size just like any other muscle. Yep. Um, so if my left ventricle is capable of pumping a certain amount of blood on stroke one, for example, and you're having however many heartbeats over a six minute race, why does it, what, what causes it to fatigue over time and what can you do to 
and fatigue, I suppose, what causes it to push less blood as you get more fatigued? And what sort of training can we do to, um, you know, alleviate that? Yeah, well, whether or not this, this is something that's not super well understood, but there's a bit of an idea that really once you pass the aerobic threshold, the stroke volume itself doesn't really change dramatically. The, mm. the main reason why you start to deliver more oxygen around the body is primarily due to an increase in heart rate as opposed to stroke yeah. volume. Um, and I think, you know, I've looked at this a little bit and that, you know, some people right around that aerobic threshold, you don't see an increase in stroke volume. Others might increase a little bit. And so your aerobic threshold is which point? The LT1. So that's, yeah, where... Which we would call T2. Yeah, the top of your T2 top training your T2. zone, yeah. That's, that's essentially the, the stuff that you're supposed to do 70 to 80% of your training at. Correct, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and I think that's probably a bit of a reason for maybe from a cardiovascular point of view, a bit of a theory is that if you're actually doing training above that, from a cardiovascular point of view, maybe you're not actually making any additional gains to being in T2 mm. if you're in T3 um, because the stroke volume changes are not really you know, significant if, if at all. So potentially just doing a lot of that long, slow training in that, in that training zone can really target that adaptation that you're after. Yeah, sure. Um, anything else in terms of training, preparing around optimising our oxygen delivery? Yeah, well, so another thing is the blood volume, so the amount of volume you have in your blood. And we actually recently had some, some swimmers tested here, and the results sort of got back, and we saw that one of our top swimming athletes had a blood volume of, I think it was in excess of nine litres, which, mm. which is just huge. Uh, and to think about... What's Someone, an average person? Average person, I think, is about um, four to five litres, and it'll mm. depend a bit, a little bit on size. size and all that sort yeah. of thing. So when I think of some of our heavy heavyweight male rowers, I might think, oh, gee, some of those guys might even be you know, 10 litres in, in the double yeah. digits, which is just absurd. Um, it's a lot of but, blood. <laughs> it's a lot of blood, but yeah. you know, if you want to be delivering oxygen through to those muscles, you kind of need to have a lot of blood. So, um, you know, and again... Being, you know, doing a lot of aerobic volume training and building up that heart size, that cardiac size can, I think, sort of feed into that. But there's some other types of training as well that you might be able to do to, to improve that. So um, we talk about heat training. We've spoken about that before. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the big uh, adaptations from doing heat-based heat training is an increase in plasma volume. Yeah. Uh, and that's the water component of, of your blood. So, and you know, one of the theories is that once you do get that dilution of blood by an increase in, in the plasma volume, that the body might then respond to increase the red blood cells and you know, your, your red blood cell volume, which is what's carrying the oxygen for you, is, um, is also going to increase. So heat, heat type training can increase your, increase your blood volume in that way. So in theory, what you're saying is that one way to improve the amount of oxygen you can move around your system is to have more total volume. Another way is to increase the amount of um, elements within the blood, within a given unit, that can carry oxygen. And one way of training that might be a heat training or previously it might have been altitude training as well. Correct, yeah. Do. Yeah, so as you know, altitude training, one of the big... Um, outcomes that you get out of that or adaptations that you get out of that is an increase in hemoglobin mass. Mm. So hemoglobin is, is the compound within the red blood cells that carries, literally carries the oxygen um, within the blood. So having a greater hemoglobin mass means a greater ability to carry the oxygen within the blood to, to the working muscles. Yeah, no, that does make a lot of sense. And 
Um, I suppose um, in terms of uh, people that might be interested in the heat heat sort of stuff, there is a, a previous podcast on the series that, that people can listen to to get more details on that. Um, but again, we'd always sort of suggest that you must seek some professional advice before you'd undertake those sort of training interventions. Absolutely. And I think at some point we'll probably get um, one of the other experts in, in the group to come in and talk to us about some uh, altitude training as well. Mm, be quite yeah, a good one. Absolutely. So, yeah, I guess when we're sort of talking about oxygen delivery, probably most people have heard of the term of VO2 max. Mm. That's really, at the end of the day, in the terms of oxygen delivery side of things, that's what we're trying to enhance. So all those different things increase your VO2 max. So VO2 max literally stands for, the V is for volume, O2 obviously for oxygen, and max for obviously maximum. So it's the maximum amount of oxygen that your body can basically use per minute. And a big part of that use, in quotation marks, would, would come down to the actual delivery of that oxygen. Yeah. So, and we'll talk through some of the other mechanisms coming up, but if you like, um, the O2 delivery part of the VO2 is the, the driving of the units of oxygen around the body to the working muscle. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a, a big part of that is definitely that aerobic volume-based training that we've spoken about. But we also know that a big way to increase an athlete's VO2 max is through high-intensity interval training. Mm. So athletes do a lot of volume training, especially in the sport of rowing and other endurance sports, do a lot of volume training, and, and you do obviously increase your VO2 max in that way. But essentially you get to a point, and you know, we've all seen this working with athletes day in, day out, but it's also been shown in the research, is that once you're sort of doing a requisite amount of volume training, adding more on top of it often won't get any changes in VO2 max. Mm. And the only real way to make those additional improvements is to add a fair bit more intensity into the, into the equation. And that intensity really needs to be targeted right around that VO2 max. And the theory is it needs to be above 90% of your VO2 max and you know, certainly above 90%, but ideally spending as much time as you can above 95% of your VO2 max. And really the only way to do that is with quite high intensity training that's you know, very close to your maximum aerobic power or mm. even above super maximal type training. So in terms of 90%, that's 90% of what exactly? So that would be 90% of the, the amount of oxygen that your body can deliver mm. per minute. So if we talk about it in litres per minute, uh, you know, it would be, you know, let's say your VO2 max is five litres per minute. Yep. Um, you'd want to be above 90% of that, which would say be four and a half litres per minute. That's how much you'd be actually delivering um, through to the muscle. And the only way to achieve that is obviously quite high intensities. You won't achieve, achieve that at lower intensities. So if I wanted to go and do a session this afternoon and try and target that sort of intensity bracket, and I was sitting on the ergo, for example, what percentage of my 2K power would that roughly equate to? Well, there's lots of different ways to do it. It'd have to be, I would say, probably at a minimum of about 90% of your 2K mm. power. So depending on the, le the duration of the efforts that you're going to do, if you're doing, say, three-minute efforts, it might be about 90%. If you're doing 30-second you know, efforts with short breaks, it might be you know, 110 or 115% yeah. of that. So it's certainly, I think it needs to be at a minimum of about 90%, but for that, that need to be longer duration reps. Yeah. And it builds over time. So the first, the first rep, you probably wouldn't be at 90% or you know, certainly 95%, but as it accumulates across the session, it, you know, it'll get harder and harder and you'll be dipping deeper and deeper into the aerobic system. Yeah, cool. So yeah, that probably covers most of it from the, from the 
oxygen delivery side of things. Very good. So number two on our list is oxygen extraction, um, which I suppose is the, the next part of the, the freeway system of running oxygen around your body. We've got, we've got um, oxygen into the circulatory system. We've got it on the freeways, and now we've got to get it somewhere. Right, so the ultimate destination is the, obviously the working muscles. That's where the, the power's been driven from. And so once the, the oxygen is delivered there, it actually needs to obviously make its way into the muscle. So the first part of it is the extraction from the blood into the muscle. Uh, and so one of the big drivers for that is capillary density. So the capillary, capillaries are you know, surrounded in uh, the muscle fibers, uh, and that's basically where they diffuse from the blood and into the muscle cell. Yeah, so in that analogy, they've, they've gotten off the freeway and they're getting, rather than reaching a bottleneck, they're reaching a whole lot of little streets where they can um, all spread themselves out into the suburb so that, they, so that the oxygen units can then get out of the car and get into the house, essentially. Absolutely, that's where they want to be. So the more, the more feeder streets into the suburb, the better. Yeah, exactly right. And so, yeah, the, more, the larger the um, density of that, those capillary beds, the more blood can actually make its way into the muscle to be and, and oxygen, obviously, to be utilised. So, am I born with a certain number of capillaries in my muscle units, or is that something that changes over time? That's absolutely changeable. It's it's very very changeable, uh, and it's probably one of the biggest, um, I guess, sort of peripheral factors um, outside of, I guess, so, you know, your central cardiovascular factors is more the heart and the blood volume and things mm. like that. And this is one of the peripheral factors that, that can change quite dramatically, that can enhance your performance. And so, uh, again, what sort of training, I guess, would, would um, facilitate the improvement in those sort of areas? Again, that sort of probably comes down more to your uh, longer, you know, volume-based endurance training. Yeah. Yeah, so, and what, what we've seen in the research is often that the changes that you see in the capillary density is, is almost mirrored, or, you know, almost exactly by the changes in the mitochondrial density. Right. And so the, the mitochondria is what they call the powerhouse of the cell. So mm -hmm. that's what's within the muscle cell itself that actually breaks down, utilises the oxygen to be able to break down, um, you know, the, the food that you've eaten into usable energy for the muscle. So oftentimes in the research world, they don't necessarily these days measure both capillary density and mitochondrial density. They often just will measure one or the other knowing that they go, hand they go hand. pretty much hand in hand, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so essentially you don't build little feeder streets off the main arterials without building houses at the end of it. Yep, absolutely. There I'm loving go. these analogies. It's keeping me, keeping me on track. There you go. So, yeah, the mitochondrial density is extremely important. So once the oxygen is extracted from the blood and into the muscle cell via the capillaries, they need to make their way into the mitochondria to be able to actually break down the energy to be able to create power for you, or, you know, regenerate power for you. Yep. And again, there's a lot of research out there showing that the amount of mitochondria that you have correlates very, very highly with endurance performance. Yep, okay. And is there any factors around how the mitochondria function or do, is the function of the mitochondria sort of set by the number of, of units that there is? No, well there's obviously, as you say, the, the number of mitochondria you have is really important, but then the, how efficient those, those mitochondria are can also play a big factor. And so 
what we sort of, some of the really quite recent research actually, in the last sort of year or so, it's coming out showing that to increase your mitochondrial number, just volume-based training is really the key driver of that. Mm. But if you want to increase the efficiency of that mitochondria, um, it's coming out that really the best way to do that is more around the intensity-based training. Interesting. So once again, you know, they go hand in hand. Mm. Yeah, you, you can't really maximize your performance with just one or the other. So um, yeah, some really good evidence coming out now showing that yeah, efficiency is, is driving those changes by um, you know, intense type of training. And, and really, ultimately, it's almost like you know, how much petrol do you need to use to generate speed? So you know, we've seen lots of athletes who might have really big capacities. They might have a really big VO2 max. And we've seen this, we've you know, measured this in the lab with some of our athletes here, is that you know, they might have a big engine, but they're really inefficient. So they're actually, and we're able to measure efficiency um, in a number of different ways, but you know, their engine might be quite big, but they, they're using a lot of that energy um, to not get a great return in actual power. So if we measure that in lab testing, we might see um, you know, athletes who, you know, big VO2 maxes and getting a lot of power out of that and others with the exact same VO2 for um, a certain, um, certain stage, but they're, they're producing far less power. And I suppose, you know, your absolute VO2 doesn't shift that much um, through training. It's, it's, you know, relatively um, set for a given athlete. But I guess the, your efficiency is something you can change. Yes, exactly. So really, we, we see very small changes in VO2 max in elite athletes. Um, it's more, it fluctuates a little bit within the season mm. based on, you know, yep. they come back from a break, if, they've, if they're doing base training versus higher intensity training. But often you don't see, you know, especially in a well-established athlete who might be in their sort of mid to, to late 20s, often you won't see, you know, a 25 of VO2 max of, you know, say seven litres and then at 30 at seven and a half litres. Often when they're at their peak, they're at their peak. Yeah. But the reason that they get better is because their efficiency improves. That's really the main, the main driver. Yeah, right. So, so in the terms of the, the 2K context, in terms of um, oxygen extraction, and utilization, what are, the, what are the fatigue signals that come in and, and how does that mechanism work? Yeah, right, well I guess ultimately, sort of as we just discussed, the, you can only deliver how much you can deliver. Yep. Uh, and once you've delivered that amount, that's really all, that's really all you can do uh, yep. in, in terms of the amount of oxygen that you can get to the working muscles. And so touching on a lot of these different training stimuli that can maximize those things is going to ensure that you've got the most amount of oxygen available yeah. um, for you know for energy regeneration so, so ultimately without that you need to then dip it more into anaerobic sources yeah. to increase the power further so it's essentially it's about building capacity very basically very basically yes mm -hmm. yeah very good and so i guess yeah i mean some of the things that you then see from that is you know, again, rowing being an aerobically driven sport, you see a lot of type one muscle fibers. Mm -hmm. So that's very important. The type one muscle fibers are the sort of the smaller, more aerobically driven muscle fibers. So they cannot produce as much raw force as the type two stronger, bigger, um, sort of thought to be more the anaerobic type fibers, um, but they're much more fatigue resistant. So they've got a lot more 
um, capillary density surrounding them. They've got more, a lot more um, mitochondria within them. They've got a lot more of the aerobic um, enzymes, um, the oxidative enzymes that, that use oxygen to break down you know, those fuel sources. So they're much more able to withstand fatigue. So they can, yeah, it's essentially have got better endurance to them. Um, but one thing that's sort of not necessarily recognised that well all the time is that you can improve those uh, different adaptations within your type two fibres as well. So mm, right. if you can, if you do, but again, if you're if you're only doing long, slow volume based training you're not actually really touching on those type two fibers. So you're not really training those type two fibers. Mm. The only time really you start to do, to touch those fibers is in, you know, initially sort of your more threshold intensity type training where you're going to recruit, um, you know, obviously the power is higher. So you need yeah. to recruit some more powerful fibers to help generate that power. But again, getting into that even higher intensity type training um, you know, that 90% of your 2K and so on, that you're really starting to recruit quite a lot of those type 2 fibres. And you start to recruit those and you train them in an aerobic manner, they become more fatigue resistant as well. Without converting to type 1, they become more fatigue resistant yes. and yet still have the capacity to, to have the dramatic um, and very quick um, uh, application of force that is the characteristic of the, the type 2 fibers. Yes, exactly. Mm. So you get a bit of a combination in in the type of training you do. You do start to shift over time your type 2 fibers to become type 1 fibers with a lot of aerobic training. That is mm. the nature of, of training. Yeah. Um, but like you say, you can also train those type 2 fibers to still remain type 2 fibers but become more fatigue resistant. And I guess sort of the the way I spoke to you about it you know, going back probably a couple of years ago, was we had an athlete who is quite anaerobic in nature and so probably has a higher proportion of type 2 fibres than maybe your classic rower does. And when you come to a 2K race, which is all out for 2,000 metres, they're going to recruit those fibres. Yeah. No matter what, they are going to be recruited because the power is so high that they are required. Now, if you haven't trained those fibres to become fatigue resistant... They're going to join in on the party, but they're not going to last very long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you want them to join in on the party, but you want them to be able to last. And the only way you can get them to last is by training them. And, and I think, look, this touches on one of the, the big areas of growth in rowing, coaching over recent years, and, and a, lot, a lot more to come, which is that understanding that, you know, there are athletes that aren't your classic um, aerobic rower who are very successful, who, who uh, contribute really well to fast boats, and they do need to have a different approach to their training at times to ensure that they are able to get through the 2K race um, or the 2K performance efficiently. And if we just train them simply the way we were trained an, an aerobically gifted athlete, we're probably not going to do their training justice. Yeah, you probably are going to shortchange them because they're, they're almost left wanting for different adaptations that they're yeah. not getting. And, um, you know, we've spoken about a little bit in... You know, at one stage we might get Alex Bauer on to, to talk about her PhD that she's starting literally next week, mm. I think. It's, it's yeah. really getting close now. Um, and we've measured the aerobic and, and anaerobic contribution to what we've done is a six-minute time trial just to, to set it by time, but to almost replicate a 2K. And we've seen, you know, as we spoke before, um, anywhere from about 75% aerobic contribution all the way up to 90% yeah. aerobic it's contribution. It's a very big difference. And... Uh, you know, somebody whose anaerobic contribution is 25%, but you're not training those sort of anaerobic, you know, natured adaptations in a way, is really going to be left wanting 
because they're going to recruit those fibres no matter what. Yeah, well, it's going to be fascinating to see how Alex Bauer's um, study turns out. You know, we have some suspicions and some hypotheses either way, but you know, believe it or not, this has not yet been done. No, um, yeah. In terms of investigating the differences between the way we train aerobically and anaerobically gifted athletes, so that will be really something to to report on as as we get down the track. Mm, absolutely. So I guess the very last thing that you might touch on, maybe just very briefly, is in terms of that, the, that economy side of things is, mm. um, you know, what else can you do outside of training? So there's, there's a little bit, a lot of people might have heard of um, nitrate supplementation or yeah, beetroot, beetroot juice. Um, it's sort of become popular in the last sort of four, four to six years, a lot coming out in the research showing that that can enhance endurance performance. And, and really one of the main reasons that they think that that happens is through the changes in economy that occur within the mitochondria so there's some things that you know some other things in terms of the vasodilation which i guess allows more blood flow to go to the muscles that's certainly one of the big adaptations we see and i guess that goes into the into the first o2 delivery section but also yeah there's a bit of evidence that it can increase the economy of the of the muscles and um, interestingly they've noticed that the sports that it works the best for are those sort of middle distance events mm. so you know things like you know anywhere from your 800 meter running races up to you know obviously rowing and, and sort of everything mm. in between uh, and initially they thought well this is an aerobically driven adaptation it's going to work all the way up to marathon sort of thing but they noticed that really it's, it's much better in that middle distance space and the reason they think it is is because it targets the type 2 fibers more than it does the type 1 fibers so again really highlighting the importance of um, aerobically adapted type 2 fibres. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting phrase, aer aerobically adapted type 2 fibres? And I think that's that's probably something to, to be really mindful of when you're considering the way you approach that, the high intensity training as part of an aerobic, a, a primarily aerobic training program, isn't it? Yeah, and I think as, as you're sort of, you know, touching on there, it, it often is left forgotten. Yeah. You know, we're, we're an aerobic sport, we're going to train the aerobic system and sort of forget that side of things. Yeah, I remember um, a while ago when we were looking at this, we were reading up on, I think it's Tim Kerrison who runs the team or has run the Team Sky physiology mm. program. And he had an article around um, talking about the fact that they they began then building their season around targeting their anaerobic training early and then going into more of an aerobic training block and then building back up to their anaerobic capacity stuff which which was almost like the inverse in, in some senses to the traditional approach where you've sort of absolutely you've yeah. built over time and there were some reasons for that and one of them was obviously you know building this um the aerobic um efficiency capacity to their type 2 fibers and the resilience to them and part of it as well was just building their raw capacity so that they were able to do their aerobic training at a higher intensity as well i think mm. there's a fascinating sort of school of it, thought there it's, it's yeah it's a bit of a flip on, on the head of how things are traditionally done but in a bit of with a bit of experience i've noticed the same thing is true you know mm. to really maximize those adaptations for your ultimate racing performance you need to start early and especially in a sport like rowing where most athletes are obviously i mean all the athletes are more aerobically driven than than anaerobically it's just sort of where on that spectrum they sit but you know the the aerobic system is much more trainable than the anaerobic system yeah so you know if you've got a fast athlete who's not fit it's a lot easier to get them fit than it is to get a fit athlete really really fast yeah so if you need to, and want to be making some of those high-end improvements 
And you know, we've got a few athletes here who their endurance capacity is actually excellent. They can hold a high percentage of their maximum power for a long time. So if you say to them, oh, you know, you know, your ergo might not be where it needs to be, you need to get fitter, really that's not necessarily the case. Their fitness, quote unquote, is actually really good. They're just not able to create enough raw power. So mm. to be able to make that change, we started now, um, as opposed to waiting until right before racing. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that there's, there's some of the ways that we've used that recently with some of the interventions with athletes have proven to be you know very successful because it's not it's not just about the physiological as well there's there's a strong confidence understanding element to it if you don't do intensity training you don't do hit training until yeah say one block of time you lead up to your ultimate competition your skills and knowledge as to how to do that session well is going to be much more limited particularly if you're doing 80 90 percent of your, your base training well of course you're going to get good at that but ultimately, um, that's not the game. And no. you know, we've had funny situations. We've had athletes. I, I had an athlete once come to me at selection and say, "Oh, you know, uh, why is this? Why is this athlete over here beating me on the water consistently? I'm fitter than than she is because you know my um, my five k ergo is much better, and my uh, you know my ten k on water time trial is much better. But actually, the only fitness that really counts is your two k fitness. Mm. You know, and that, that's a it's a very funny. Um, mindset that athletes very often fall into, and I think coaches fall into that as well. Oh, mm. They're very fit. They're very fit. Well, they're fit for the thing you're looking at them doing, but are they actually fit for the race? Exactly. Yeah. And and I had again a similar anecdote was an athlete recently said, "Oh, you know, so and so is is beating me every single week in the thirty minute rate twenty piece." And I said, "Yeah, but you beat them by seven seconds in the two k." Yeah. So. So what that's, it, that's, all, that's all that counts. What does a 30 minute rate 20 yeah. mean? It's a yeah. great monitoring tool over time to see how you're progressing against yourself, mm. maybe relative to others as a benchmarking tool, but it is not the ultimate benchmark. No, not at all. Anyway, we're getting a bit off track here. What's mm. next, BT? All right, so muscle acidity. Muscle acidity. So this is, this is a good one. This, this is, is pH. This is pH, it's hydrogen ions, it's lactic acid, oh it's all the dreaded things, thank you. It's all the things that rowers dread and you hear, oh, I've got the lactic burn and you know, oh, tell all my that stuff. Out. <laughs> yeah, I could, taste, I could taste the lactic in my, you know, in my mouth and mm. all that sort of thing. So Yeah, we love that. Yeah. Boys well, don't understand. No, well, that, they say they do, but they don't. Mm. Anyway. Um, so yeah, muscle acidity, it, do, it obviously does play a role in, in the fatigue generation in rowing. Uh, you know, it's one of the big limiters to, to rowing performance. Um, and essentially, sort of to break it down, you know, we talk a lot about lactic acid and lactate and things like that. It's very easily measurable, and so that's yeah. what we can measure. But it's, it's actually, it's not necessarily the lactate itself that's causing any problems. So um, when you're you know, regenerating energy and you're breaking energy down, um, especially, you know, glucose, glycogen molecules, um, you know, to release energy. What you're left with at the end of the sort of the glycolytic pathway, so glycolytic mean, you know, breaking down glycogen, uh, essentially you end up with a pyruvate or pyruvic acid molecule. Now, if there's enough oxygen available for the process to continue on aerobically, sort of all, all is well and it carries on, but if there's not, what you get is that pyruvic acid is transferred or sort of transposed into lactic acid. Mm -hmm. uh, now, so what, with lactic acid, what you have is then that breaks down to a lactate molecule 
and a hydrogen ion. And it's that hydrogen ion that can interfere with muscle contraction. Right. So the hydrogen ion is the problem? Yes, the hydrogen ion is the problem, but and it's... And the, the lactate is the thing that we are easily able to measure. Exactly, relatively. yeah. And, and we obviously measure that in the blood. So really, it's sort of a proxy of a proxy almost. Yeah. So the problems happening within the muscle, the hydrogen ions and the drop in the pH that you get within the muscle itself, um, then, but what we're actually measuring is the lactate, actually not in the muscle itself, but in the blood. So mm -hmm. it sort of makes its way out you know, from, from the muscle and, and into the blood. And that's what we're looking at. And it can be a very good marker, but not, not always. It can be a little bit misleading. So It's probably a pretty good relative marker, though, isn't it, to yourself? To yourself, yes. Mm. It's, yeah. not a good, it's not a good benchmark across people. No, not I, at all. I, I get to 22 millimole at the end of a 2K, well, I did when, when I was very fit. That means nothing compared to, say, you know, a very, very accomplished role that, that we have here who very, you know, doesn't often see above 10. Exactly. But was a good, is a good, his best is about 20 seconds better than my best. <laughs> Only 20. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell the ice, mate. It's more like 30. We're not talking now. <laughs> 40. No. Okay. Yeah. But no, as you say, it, it is, it's relative to yourself and you can see changes mm. over time. Um, in terms of yeah, your own improvements. And, and I guess if you're seeing lower lactates for the same power output, for example, the same intensity level, what you're seeing there is an improvement in your aerobic ability to you know, potentially do that task with less um, you know, anaerobic contribution. Yep. So the oxygen system is able to drive that, that power more. So if you, build your if you build your aerobic capacity, you are less reliant on your anaerobic capacity. So that's one way to that, mitigate against yep. the lactate fatigue. That, yep, that's one way. For a given output. For a given output, yep. And the other way would then be that um, you, you, know, you might be producing a similar amount of, of lactate and hydrogen and so on, but you might be clearing it a lot faster. So there's an efficiency on how you can get that back out of the system yes. and around. Yeah. And so lactate itself is actually, um, it's actually a fuel source. Yeah. So once it, it splits from the lactic acid and becomes hydrogen lactate, it makes its way into the blood where it can be regenerated in, in muscle fibers, aerobic muscle fibers that aren't actually being used as much or at all uh, in, that, in that task to be able to turn that around back into, back into usable energy for you. So it's actually a good thing in that sense. And, and the way we actually clear the excess is through breathing. You yeah. breathe, breathe it off, essentially. Yeah, well, that's, that's sort of the term that gets thrown around. So really... I guess, yeah, when we're talking about muscle acidity, what we're, we're ultimately, the adaptations we're trying to make there is the buffering system. Yeah. And the body's natural way that it buffers acidity is through um, the bicarb system. Yeah. And so bicarb tries to, to sort of, yeah, buffer that, those hydrogen ions, and what you basically get left with after that process is more carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, and the, the way to sort of sort of get rid of that, so to speak, is obviously to breathe it out. So um, I guess breathing is almost a consequence of buffering as opposed to this is how we buffer. Yep. But um, yeah, that, that's sort of what you see there. Yeah, so, so to, to attenuate or limit the impact of muscle acidity, yes, for, for a given output, if, our, if we can improve our aerobic um, capacity, we, we won't have to dig in as much to the anaerobic capacity and that's going to lower our muscle acidity. But that's not the point because we want to go faster. Exactly. So if we accept that we can tolerate, a human can tolerate, I can uh, tolerate this amount of suffering 
but I want to go faster. So I improve my aerobic capacity and I build my anaerobic capacity. Um, can I build my tolerance to the feeling of acidity as part of training? Is that, is that a part of what we do here? Well, the feeling per se, probably not. It's still yeah. going to feel bad. In fact, it might even feel worse. But um, in terms of the way the body can cope with it, yes, you can definitely build the way that your body can tolerate with it. So really, that's the body can improve its buffering system. So, yep. um, and again, initially, this is I found this quite interesting when I really started digging into the, the, the research on high-intensity interval training. And it might actually be good to get an expert um, on the show to talk about this at one point. Um, but what they noticed was in very, very well-trained athletes, when they did high-intensity in interval training, they saw an enhancement in performance. And often they saw that enhancement without any change in things like VO2 max. Yeah. And they couldn't quite place their finger on why they thought that was until they started taking uh, muscle samples and noticing that they were seeing a big change in the, I guess, the machinery and, and whatnot um, that's involved in muscle buffering. Right. And so... High-intensity interval training is one of the best ways to improve your, your body's natural buffering capacity. Yeah. So, yeah, that's going to essentially allow you to, um, you know, turn that, that acidity around um, to allow you to, you know, withstand higher intensity um, and, you know, tolerate that pain, really. Yeah, well, higher intensity for the same acidity because you're actually, you're not allowing this acidity to continue to accumulate and get compound and get... Higher yeah, and higher. Exactly. You're mitigating that change. So HIIT training is one, but there are also supplementations that can help with that too once you've attended to great training practice. Yeah. and common. Which, yeah. Well, and I guess that's a good point because oftentimes when you talk about buffering, people will go first to those ergogenic aids. Yeah. They'll talk about things like sodium bicarbonate um, supplementation. Yeah. They'll talk about things like beta alanine supplementation, but really the best way is to look into doing the right training. Do the training and first. And do the training first. Make those physiological adaptations. The machinery within your body is you know, dealt to cope with. Yep. Uh, and then you move on to, can, can we top that up even further with some erg ergogenic aids? So in, in terms of the two that you mentioned there, bi sodium bicarbon, beta alanine, they, they work in different mechanisms too, don't they? The two they do, yeah. yeah. So bicarb works predominantly in the blood. Yep. Whereas uh, beta alanine is actually working within the muscle itself. Yeah, and, and bicarb is used differently as well, isn't it? So one's um, uh, extracellular, one's intracellular. Yes. Is that correct? Correct. And, but, but equally, bicarb, sodium bicarb can be used just for a performance, today's race. Yep. And it's done in, in, a, in an acute sense. Whereas beta alanine is more something that you load chronically over time. And correct. Yes, so yeah, if you think about it, really, we're, we're trying to, you know, if the, the natural body's buffering system is by using bicarbonate, mm. um, essentially taking it acutely, you're just giving the body more buffering for ability, to, yeah, you know, to facilitate right, yeah. that, um, you know, from an extracellular point of view. Uh, from the intracellular point of view, you need, that adaptation takes a lot more, a lot more time to, to build up. So, yeah. um, and there are different protocols out there. Initially, I think when the research really started looking into it, they were doing 10 week loading periods, but I've seen some more recently that are as maybe as low as around four weeks and maybe even three weeks or lower. Yep. Um, and yeah, there's obviously different ways to go about it, but yeah, it's a more chronic adaptation. It takes a lot more and I time. Would, I would say from a coaching point of view, there's a caution that I would give anecdotally around the use of, of beta alanine and, and we've used it, you know, in, 
of regular periods of time over the last six to eight years, um, we find that certain athletes will find that they can dig a lot deeper into their daily training. And we have found athletes that dig a hole for themselves because the beta alanine enables them right now to work a bit harder. They feel that they can work a bit harder. They dig themselves a bigger hole, but their ability to recover from that may not have improved. And mm, at least in the short term, yeah. That's right. And the training program might not have been um, manipulated to allow for more recovery to need to happen. So it's just a cautionary tale, I think, for anyone who's experimenting and dabbling out there in these sort of things. You need to be very smart about the way you use these sort of things in a training program and only ever after you've done the training stuff first. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, you've, you've hit it spot on there. It's It really is... Yeah, you can dig yourself a bigger hole. And, and I think what often gets a little bit forgotten is a lot of the fatigue that you generate through training is more system-based fatigue. Yep. So, you know, we talk about lactates and oftentimes people take a lactate sample at the end of the recovery of a session to see, you know, has it come back down to resting and, and all those different sorts of things. But I think ultimately, you know, your lactate is going to come back down naturally yeah. and, and it'll be back to resting, you know, relatively shortly after you've finished. But it's the digging in that extra little bit deeper, it puts a much bigger toll just on your overall system, your central yeah. nervous system, your autonomic, autonomic nervous system, um, and so which is less measurable unless you're using things like heart rate variability. And if you weren't using that, then you you know you might be telling yourself a different tale in terms of how much yeah. fatigue you've generated from from a training session. It'd be misleading. You Absolutely. Miss the signals on that. Yeah, and there's there's actually been a good study done in rowing where they looked at the use of sodium bicarbonate supplementation in training to see if that could enhance the adaptations to the training. And I think, you know, the hypothesis there was that, you know, if we're training harder because mm -hmm. we're using sodium bicarb, our adaptations will be better and therefore, you know, we'll improve by more over a given period of time. What they actually found in that study, and I think it's, I'm only really aware of one, especially only one in rowing, and it showed no, no, no additional benefit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some of that might be in the, the training that they did. And, you know, there's lots of different factors. Uh, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm 100% convinced that absolutely it will not in, enhance your adaptation to train using it. But certainly it's not so clear cut that, yeah. you know, you use these things and, you, you know, you're going to get a better training outcome. Yeah, there's two things that come to mind for me, though, with that. I, I think that things like particularly um, sodium bicarb, they can affect the way a person will race. A person who, and bearing in mind, we can actually measure someone's um, sodium bicarb or the bicarb that they have available, and we can we can use um, blood tests to determine whether an athlete will actually um, benefit from using a buffer-like yeah. sodium bicarb. If they deplete their bicarb, exactly. Some people yep. just don't, mm. and and therefore sodium bicarb really won't have much of an impact. But we have some that that do. That's one of the things that does happen um, within their bodies when, they, when they're doing high-intensity exercise. Often they're very anaerobic athletes, mm. and they do benefit from using this sort of stuff. And when they do use a buffer like sodium bicarb, they'll race differently. It'll yeah. change the, their pacing, their tactics around racing. And I think that if you're going... My, my theory is, and it flies a little bit in the face as to the way selections have worked in Australia in the past, is I think if you're going to select an athlete and they're going to use this stuff, they should use it for selection. You should select them exactly the way they're going to race. I think a lot of the time there's a bit of a, uh, a mission to keep it clear of any of the supplementation, but I, I don't see the difference between supplementations and any of the other training interventions we're talking about. If you're going to use it and it's going to be effective, use it and know what it is hmm. and understand how to do it properly. Um, and don't just throw it in at the last minute. I think that would be 
a disaster waiting to happen, really. Yeah, and look, and we have seen that. Um, but yeah, look, I actually totally agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, if you've got two athletes who, let's say you and I, all things are equal and we're relatively the same over 2K, but I'm a responder to bicarb and you're not, mm. you know, you might get selected. Yeah, but ultimately uh, you know, your potential in, um, uh, performance, your ultimate potential performance is better than mine if, yeah. you, if you're facilitated the opportunity to use it. And that's what, I, I think that's important. But also, if you never use it, in training or in your preparation racing and you suddenly get to your ultimate event and at the 700 meter mark where you'd normally be really trying to keep things steady you feel like you can be you know four percent more on the pace with your power which is probably legitimate for some of these athletes that could dramatically affect the way your race tactic works and that will affect the people the way the people in the boat with you might react to the way you're mm. working and it's something that needs to be done very intelligently, not just thrown in there. Yeah, at and the and, last minute. and you do hear about stories where you know you feel a million bucks at the thousand, and you're just going for it, going for it, and come mm. the you know the seventeen fifty, <laughs> you're uh, suddenly you're not feeling so good because you've just you've gone a little bit too yeah. hard too early. So you need to learn how to pace, and you, you need do. to learn how to use it. So certainly using it in training. It's a cautionary tale. This mm. sort of stuff. I think it's it seems like a silver bullet, and it certainly ain't. <laughs> no. Not at all. So um, I guess the last couple of little things here on the acidity stuff is, again, doing the right type of high-intensity training is, again, going to lead to an increase in the oxidative capacity of those type 2 fibres, again. So it's yep. that, that, that story again. Mm -hmm. And so more, more oxidative potential is going to mean um, that you're going to be able to mitigate that um, you know, lactate and hydronine um, accumulation more than you would have. Yep. Um, so, and again, that's where a lot of those changes are being driven as the intensity increases uh, to race intensity and as individual muscle fibres start to sort of fail, um, you know, you're recruiting type 2 fibres more and more as the, as the race goes on, they need to be able to cope with that. Um, so, you know, if you're not training it, you're not, you're not getting those adaptations. Um, and then I guess the, the last thing is, um, from a training point of view, I, I read a paper recently um, that was talking about the, you know how you might structure a training session to maximize your buffering capacity mm. uh, and what they spoke about in this paper is specifically about the rest duration so yeah. what they sort of theorized was that if you're taking quite long breaks between your reps you might you might be doing quite high intensity reps but if you're taking long breaks between those reps what happens in those rest breaks obviously is that everything sort of starts to come back down towards baseline and if the whole point you know the adaptation itself is driven by an unstable environment where lots of things are accumulating, allowing them to come back down to baseline will make each sort of rep a little bit easier and yeah. those signals that are stimulating the adaptations are much less. Yep. So what they suggested in this paper was that to maximise your buffering capacity, you need to minimise the rest periods a little bit. So still being able to achieve high intensities but the rests aren't too long, that you don't come back down to baseline too quickly and then that those hydrogen ions, lactate, etc, etc are going to accumulate quite dramatically so that you know after the first rep it's one thing but by the last rep it's it's super duper high and that's going to drive um that you know that potential to improve your bus buffering capacity and i think that's a that's often a challenge for rowing because in between a piece of work the coach wants to catch up quickly and next thing you know seven minutes have gone by and that can very easily happen mm -hmm. and i think that's something that coaches have to be mindful of if they're trying to target this type of intervention you need to be strict on the rest times. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, well, just the other day, you guys came back in after a session on the Yarra and you were held up by traffic at one point. Yeah. And 
every, you guys are all making Pinky. fun of me. <laughs> Pinky, oh, you've been thrown under the bus, Pinky. But, you know, without me there to defend myself, everyone was saying, oh, Rod's going to be furious. We didn't adhere to the rest periods. <laughs> and then you came in and you gave it to me, but that's why. It came in with my tail <laughs> between my legs and said, I'm sorry, mate. That's why. That's why I'm strict on it. But obviously on, on the ergo is a really good way that you can train that. Yeah. It's, it's very it's, easy to, to sort of control for. Yeah, and important. Mm. Moving on. Let's move on. Very good. So our next one is uh, force generation. Right. So yeah, we've obviously we've spoken about you know oxygen delivery, being able to you know get the the ingredients to the cell to be able to produce force. Ultimately, that's what we're looking at. We yeah. we need our muscles to contract to produce force to propel the boat down the down the course. So. Being able to produce a lot of force is is really really important. So, um, how do we do that? Right. So, I mean, I guess the most obvious thing when you're talking about force generation would be your strength training. That's sort of the, probably yeah. the thing that first comes to mind. So, you get in the gym, you get strong, and you increase the body and the muscles' ability to generate raw force. Yep. Um, and is that just uh, is are you just talking about you know say the amount of weight lifted or are you talking about the velocity, a bit of everything? It's yeah, it's a little bit of everything, and different types of strength training will give you different types of adaptation. So some will be very force specific, some will be um, you know a bit more power specific. So yeah, contraction of uh, the velocity of the contraction, um, and you know some might be you know not to do with that much at all. It might be more about your stability in the boat, which is obviously yeah. really really important. Um, you know, strength of your core and, you know, sort of supporting muscle groups. And that is that functional strength, isn't it? Yeah, correct, yeah. So, and quite often what, what we have seen in the past is that, um, you know, this, the approach of strength training has been to try and improve strength first and then make it functional, whereas I suppose now more and more it's done hand in hand, mm, yeah. all together, yeah. you know, trying to build... Um, coordination, proprioception, and those other factors that, that relate to your capacity to use the force you're building. Um, exactly, yeah. I mean, and you know, you, you see it quite a bit. You, you might have a really strong athlete who just can't actually transfer that into the right type of force mm. generation in the boat. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we could probably get our, our strength and conditioning coach, um, John Tasconi, on here to talk about that in more yeah, detail. Yeah. That would probably be a good one um, to listen to, get his thoughts on. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, yeah, a big part of it is, you know, building up, you know, in the initial phase, I guess, probably talking more your sort of younger athletes is just building up sort of a bit of muscle hypertrophy. Yep. Um, you know, the more muscle mass you have, the more force you can generate. Um, and then from there, um, you know, increasing the amount of generation from the muscle fibers that you have. So you may not necessarily get bigger and get sort of more muscle hypertrophy, but you're training those fibers to be able to generate more force. Yeah. And you know some of that comes down to how much of the fibres you've generated can actually be recruited. Uh, yeah. And you know that's a big part of heavy strength training is around teaching the system to be able to recruit. Yeah. Know. And I was listening to Sam Locke talking on um, another podcast recently around you know his belief that part of what he was doing was not so much just improving his the the size of his muscle, but the amount of muscle fibers within a, a unit that he could actually access and he felt like he'd gotten himself to a point where you know he was he was able to access as much as he possibly could so that's a big part of this, the training is not necessarily just to make the the to improve the size of the muscle fibers and the and 
the number of them, but to actually improve the number that you can actually use mm. when you need to. Exactly. When you call on it. Yeah, and yeah, and that is that's very trainable. Yeah. It's absolutely very trainable. Um, and so I guess one of the things that when you talk to your strength coaches about and how they advocate for the the importance of strength, a lot of it is around efficiency. Yeah. And so what we know from some of the good research done primarily in, in other sports like cycling and running and so on, is that what we see is an increase in efficiency um, you know, during endurance type work with strength training. And, and predominantly what we see is that quite heavy strength training is what see, we see those improvements in. So yeah. um, you know, oftentimes in endurance sports, you know, we think about rowing as a strength endurance sport. And you yeah. know, in a sense, it is a strength endurance sport. You, you do need to be strong. You have to produce a lot of force, and that's force generation in terms of power, which is sort of the ultimate game. Um, you know, when you've got, we spoke about this the other week, was that you know, if power is force times velocity, um, you know, the force side in rowing has to be quite high because the velocity of the contraction is so relatively high. slow. Mm. So if we're talking, you know, 800 milliseconds or whatever it might be, 0.8 of a second in running or cycling, it might be. You know, 0 0.08 or 0 0.1. Yeah. Um, so significantly different. Significantly different, yeah. So, um, yeah, to get power, the force side of that equation has to be quite high in, in rowing. So, becoming strong is very important. And historically, people have thought, well, you know, it's rowing, we're taking 250, 260 strokes. Let's replicate that in the gym. Let's do strength yeah. endurance work in the gym. And, and often, what we've seen is that, you know, that's a really good stimulus for, for hypertrophy, yeah. um, that type of training, but it doesn't necessarily lead to the best outcomes um, in terms of racing performance yeah. um, so you know unless hypertrophy and muscle size is, is a limiter for you what we've seen is that heavy strength training and becoming maximally strong leads to the better type of adaptations that enhance rowing and endurance performance specifically yeah and and i think i've mentioned this once before you know i had a, a lecturer paul taylor back in the days at uni and he used to talk about um, you know, the ability to be able to isolate exercises um, in the gym that you're going to then need to integrate. I mean, he used to say, if you're going to isolate, you must plan to integrate. And I'm always mindful of that when we talk about our gym planning here, that the opportunity and the stable platform on the land with some of the gym exercises to isolate parts of movements and to strengthen parts of movements. And my job as a rowing coach is then to make sure I'm trying to reintegrate that back into the rowing framework mm. so that it is it is functional but not to ignore the chance not not to try and make the gym so functionally focused just for replicating rowing that we miss the chance to actually isolate down to where the little problems might be exactly and, and i mean i'd sort of encourage coaches in every type of training session they do to decide well what's the actual purpose of this training so yeah. if you're doing volume based training the purpose is you know some of those adaptations we spoke of before in the gym really the main goal is to get strong to be able to increase your body and your muscles ability to generate force so if you don't target the training to focus that you're going to get something different out of it and yeah. potentially not make the biggest changes and and again in, in some really big reviews that have looked at all of the um, the strength training done in endurance sports, they found that heavy strength training is the best form of strength training to improve performance. So mm. not that strength endurance. You know, if you're trying to improve strength endurance, you're better off just rowing. Yeah. So you know, you're not really going to get any endurance from yeah. gym yeah. that you couldn't get at rowing. a greater level rowing the boat. Yeah. So you'd be better off doing it that way. 
So, yeah, really, when we talk about efficiency, one, one of the things that a lot of strength coaches would, an example they would give, and, you know, this probably simplifies it quite a lot, but it's a good way to think about it at least, is, you know, if you think that your maximum amount of force you can produce is, let's say, 1,000 newtons, for argument's sake. You're going quite well, Bill? Yep. 1,000 newtons, pretty good. do that. So, and then in a race, let's say you can produce 500 newtons on average. Yep down the 2k course so that's 50 percent mm-hmm. okay i'm just sort of throwing out random numbers here now yep. if you can increase your maximum force production from you know 1000 to 1100 you might also be able to improve if, if your endurance capacity stays relatively similar you might be able to hold a similar percentage of that 50 percent mm. through the whole 2k now that gives you more force per stroke now, it's certainly not that simple, and I don't yeah. think it's going to be a one-for-one one change, um, but we do see improvements in efficiency with increases in strength when nothing else from a fitness point of view changes. changes. So yeah. we see things like you know, your threshold power increases with heavy strength training yep. because you're producing more force but not necessarily metabolically driven. So yeah. the lactate and so on that you're measuring isn't necessarily increasing, so you're your actual threshold power is improved and sort of you know up and down the chain from there so which is pretty logical when you think about yeah, it. yeah it's logical and again it's it's probably oversimplifies it a little mm. bit um but that's you know how a lot of the strength coaches will um sort of advocate why strength training is important and, and look and i, I agree um yeah. and what we're actually wanting to look at with some of the power meter stuff that we've got is just that you know you might take an athlete who we look at their maximum force production we might get them to do some starts look at their absolute maximum force production and then look at what the average force production is across a 2K. And kind of, you know, once you compare against the group, you, you know, you might have one athlete who can hold 60% of their maximum force. And then to, to say to them, oh, you're not fit enough, is maybe telling a bit of a, a false story because, well, they can hold a relatively high mm. percentage of their maximum force. It's not endurance capacity that the problem is. Maybe it's just raw force generation. Yeah. And then vice versa, somebody who's got a really high force generation but can only hold 40% of it down the course so well you can produce enough force that's no issue now you just need to be you know have better endurance to hold a higher um, proportion of that down the course then again can really inform your training yeah absolutely and again and that and that's what we're sort of looking at at the moment we've done that on the ergo done that very thing on the ergo and we'll say well you know you know you're holding a really good percentage of your of your max power for a 2k um, but that that max power just needs to be higher at this yeah, stage. Yeah. That's where we're going to target your training. And we've got, at the moment, we've got a handful of athletes that have the exact opposite problems from one another. Yeah. And so literally at the moment, we've got athletes in the same part of the off-season, let's call it, doing almost exactly opposite training. Yeah. Um, or at least in their key targeted training outside of the normal sort of, you know, that 80% endurance work that they sort of always yeah. do. Which is, again, logical when you think Logical, about but often not necessarily mm-hmm. done. Um, so that I guess, you know, logically when you're thinking a little bit about force generation, you think about, you know, your starts, you know, the raw mm. power getting you out of the blocks, maybe your end spurt, maybe things like speed changes, you know, depending on what your pacing profile might be. Yep. All those things are obviously important. In a small boat, you're trying to make a move on someone. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So things might be important there, but, but again, I think it's, it is important globally from the start all the way through the middle and to the end of the race as opposed to just... Strength is only important for the start or it's only important for the wind or I yeah. think it is important for the efficiency throughout the whole thing. And, and again, stability, obviously super important in the boat. Yeah. All of those little things, 
you know, are, are really important. Yeah, and that, that's probably what is is not as well understood at times is that a lot of the a lot of the stuff that the the athletes will work on in the gym in terms of their strength is trying to improve their strength throughout their body, the the um, the chain of support that goes through their whole body, which enables them to be more stable in the boat. Mm. Um, and that's a very big part of what the strength training is designed to do. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I guess the very last thing, I'm gonna, I might nerd out here a little bit on you. Yeah. Um, you can see your finger hovering over that button. <laughs> um, is when we're talking about force generation, it, it's all well and good to be able to generate force for one contraction, two contractions and so on. But when the intensity is super high in a, in a 2K, in a, in a race, um, you know, the body's ability to what we call maintain the sort of cell excitability mm. is sort of diminished as the body fatigues. Yep. So when to generate force, you know, the, the brain and spinal cord sends an electrical signal to the muscle yep. to contract. So um, if the cells sort of lose that excitability or, or that electrical potential, um, you know, the signal starts to get sent, but the but it's, I guess, not being received, to put it sort of simply. Yeah. And so the cell itself is not contracting. Yep. So we need to train our muscle cells to maintain cell excitability and maintain that electrical potential in the back end of a race when you know everything is sort of going haywire. Yeah, So and what is that? What are the mechanisms there? Right, so one thing that's sort of come out probably in the last 10 years, five to 10 years, is something that seems to be really important is what they call the sodium-potassium pump. And I guess speaking really, really simply, one of the main functions of the sodium-potassium pump is you know, it pumps sodium-potassium in and out of the cell to really maintain that potential um, so that when, when, the, when the stimulus comes, it, it can contract. Uh, and what they found with there's certain types of training you can do that essentially, um, I guess, gives you, it, it trains some of those subunits of that sodium-potassium pump to, to allow those sort of adaptations to be made and maintain that excitability under so, parts of fatigue. So d does, it, does this sort of training um, improve the efficiency of the pump? Um, yeah, or, I guess, yeah, so to speak, yeah. So, I mean, what we see is we, they see in this research they've taken muscle biopsies and they've done certain types of training and they've found that one of the subunits um, of the sodium-potassium pump um, is sort of up-regulated up with that with right. that training um, and the training that we see it's that causes that is more your super maximal training so yep. training that's done above your maximum aerobic power so which, which for be us would be at two right power. around your 2k power yep. so um, some of the classic research that's looked into it is things like your your 30 seconds on 30 seconds off um, you know you might do you know a classic one that we do is maybe three sets of 10 by yep. 30 seconds on 30 seconds off and we we often prescribe that at at a minimum of you know, 110% of your 2K power, roughly. Yeah. So it, it's, you know, the first few reps are not that hard. It's only 30 seconds. You get a short break. But by the end of it, it's very, very difficult. You know, your lactates are well and truly in the teens, uh, you know, sometimes yeah. into the 20s. It's, it's super high intensity. Um, and, yeah, that sort of training, you know, you can do various... You, you know, can vary that a lot, can't yeah, you? Yeah, 30 by 30 on, 30 off is a really good standard benchmark that you can move up and down move, from. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, we've, we've done everything... For, you know, 30 on, 30 off. We've done 15 seconds on, 15 seconds off, 60 40, seconds on. Yeah, and then you can skin it lots and lots of different ways. Um, yeah. And obviously the, the, the power or the speed and whatnot will change depending on the, the duration of the reps. And we found anywhere between, you know, 10 to 20 minutes of work 
yeah. in a session. Um, and you know what's interesting if you measure your heart rate or measure VO2, you know, which you know your oxygen delivery uh, measures, is that you might do 15 minutes worth of work, but have 20 minutes worth of time, you know, at or above various markers because the yeah. rest is so short. You're actually you spending don't recover, a, you don't yeah. recover fast enough. Yeah. So, in terms of you know the raw power might be. 15 minutes in zone five or whatever, but you might spend 20 minutes in zone five, heart rate zone, yeah. um, just because it doesn't come down. So it's um, it's a really strong stimulus and, and it maintains the muscle's ability to continue to generate force as as you come down the 2K course. And like all of these factors we discussed today, they, they work in hand in hand with others. So presumably that sort of 30 on 30 off, in terms of improving the cell excitability from the, um, uh, the pump that we're talking about, um, the sodium potassium pump that you're talking about, it's also going to have the same sort of effect on your buffering capacity, for instance. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, you see changes in buffering capacity, you see changes in VO2 max. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's, they all work hand in hand. They all do. Yeah. But I mean, they, in one sense, they all work hand in hand, but in another sense, some things only cause certain mm, adaptations. Yeah. So, so if you miss doing this altogether, you're going to miss your potential to improve this aspect it, of your training. Exactly. And, and I think, and look, the research is never definitive. There's not everything's been looked at, but if you're trying to make changes to this, you're trying to make this specific adaptation, and you only do, I guess, let's call it VO2 max or maximal aerobic power type of training, where you, let's say you do eight by three minutes on, three minutes off at 90% of your 2K, yep. you're going to get VO2 max improvements. So you're going to get buffering capacity improvements, but will you get so the, the excitability? You know, maybe not, or maybe very mm -hmm. small changes. So my theory is if you want to improve all of the different, and you know, we're talking about all the different physiological limiters to 2K performance, if you want to you know, optimize each of those, you kind of need to do each of the types of training. Yeah. Uh, and you, know, you can't do everything all at once, uh, but you know, it's, the art then is when do, we fit, when do we fit which sort of parts of training into which parts of the year to maximize each yeah. of those systems. Yeah, and if we, <clears throat> if we neglect something altogether, you, know, you miss out on an opportunity and if you don't do enough of it you might just lack the skills to be able to do it properly anyway correct yeah and look i mean that's a big part of it doing some of these training sessions on an ergo or a walk bike is pretty easy mm. doing it on the water is different altogether it is yeah uh, and so and often you know some of the things we've done is we do it on the ergo first to i guess teach them the intent of the session from a physical mm. point of view and then say okay we'll tr take that intent Let's transfer that into the boat yeah. um, and well, add the technical element to it. I think a great example of that was in, in this almost exact session, you know, going back a year, we had the Australian Women's Aid that was um, brought back onto the Olympic team late. For late, for late. For late, for late. And they were prepared down here. And we, we, domestic, you know, we prepared them in Australia to go over there. And we only had a few weeks to do it. And I remember we did exactly few, that. Wasn't we it did 13 days or something? 18 days. <laughs> Um, you know, I remember we very clearly went, we did a, a few days where we did this sort of um, high intensity interval stuff on the watt bike, then we moved on to the ergo, and then we moved it onto the water. And it was mm. a very simple transition to, to try and give them a little bit of a whack of confidence around their upper end stuff. Mm, exactly, yeah. And I think that worked pretty well. It did, for, for what it was. I thought it was good. Is that it? Next one? I think it might be. Right, so we're getting up to the uh, upper end of the scale now. We're going to talk about the anaerobic capacity. Yeah, so anaerobic capacity, again, as we've sort of said, it's often neglected a little bit in, in rowing. Um, but essentially, I think maybe the, one of the best ways to explain it and its importance is 
using the term speed reserve. So speed reserve yeah. is not really referred to in rowing or, you know, you don't really hear that term thrown around. It's, no, it's, it's probably, very common in a lot of other sports. Yeah, yeah, you know, especially in running. Running, it's sort of quite a good... Um, quite a good one, and there's actually there's um, uh, a guy in who's working for High Performance Sport New Zealand at the moment, doing his PhD in speed reserve, and he's travelling around the world, um, you know, looking at speed reserve capacity in middle distance runners. He was actually here at the VIS a few months ago, working with some of our middle distance runners. Um, a guy named Gareth Sanford. It might actually be good to try and get him onto the show to chat about this. It's a really yeah, cool, okay. interesting topic, um, and you know, essentially what it is, it's that speed reserve, the anaerobic speed reserve, is the difference between your maximum aerobic power or maximum aerobic speed. So the power, let's you know, let's call it power that you can generate at your VO2 max, mm. all the way up to your maximum power. Yep. So again, you know, if if your maximum aerobic power is 500 watts, again, Bill, you're going really well. You're training hard at the yep. moment. Um, seen you on the ergo, you've been on the swingulator, you're just oh, been, yes. you know, you're kicking goals <laughs> at the moment. Um, but and your maximum power is you know 1100 watts. That's yeah. that's a 600 watt yeah. anaerobic power reserve. Let's call it. Um, now that's quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know that's that's a lot that you can use and tap into. You know rowing for a male on the you know on the ergo is roughly five minutes. Uh, sorry, roughly six minutes. You know, you're going to tap into that. Yeah. You know, you're definitely going to be you're going to be over 500 watts. You know, so you're going to be tapping into that anaerobic speed or you know a power reserve. Um, and so you might have somebody else who also their max aerobic power is 500 watts, but their ma- absolute maximum power is only a thousand watts. You know, you've got an extra 100, 100 watts in your back pocket, so to speak, to be able to use yeah. in the race. And and that's going to that's going to be your advantage and and off and we've seen you know we've got athletes here who um you know we've got sort of you know athletes we're comparing at the moment one you know their their threshold power might be 250 watts and another one whose threshold power might be 270 watts and you would say oh you know 270 watt athletes going to be the faster over 2k they're you know they're fitter their threshold's better in actual fact it's the 250 watt athlete who's faster over 2k because you know, in this case, it's it's one of the girls. Her her max aerobic, uh, so maximum anaerobic power is through the roof, and so her anaerobic power reserve is is far greater to, than the other athlete. And what's probably you know salient there is that that for that athlete with the high anaerobic capacity, um, they have they have the potential to use that engine, but that engine comes at a cost. And if they aren't trained to use that engine well, then they're naturally going to try and use it and it's going to cost them. Correct. So that's probably the, the really important point around the anaerobic capacity, isn't it? You, if you, uh, you're going to use it and you need to train for it. Yes, yeah. And, and I think you need to train for it from the point of view of being able to do the training in a certain way and be able to get through all the training that, that ha- you know, you've got prescribed for you. But when it comes to racing, and it sort of goes back to mitigating fatigue if you've got this system sitting there revving right ready you know ready to go and contribute to your power but you haven't trained some of the adaptations around yeah. it they're got they're going to stop it from you know blowing up on you 1500 meters down the course then you're going to be in a fair amount of trouble yeah 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 absolutely yeah so and i guess you know there's probably not heaps to really talk about that um but you know again when we do talk about anaerobic capacity often we think about the start or the wind to the line, that sort of thing. But again, 
you know, depending on how you pace your race, and we've seen it, you know, measuring it in some of the athletes here, some athletes use up all their anaerobic capacity at the very beginning and leave almost nothing for the last, you know, half of the thousand metres. Others, you know, use up a little, I mean, obviously, the predominant amount is used in the first few minutes yep. uh, because it takes a while for the aerobic system to you know say kick in let's let's say yeah um, so a big part of your um, you know the anaerobic capacity that you do have to use uh, is used early but some athletes then sort of save that through the middle and then come roaring home with a big uh, you know we've seen we've measured it a big amount of increase in power but no change in vo2 yeah so vo2 hasn't changed but power's increased dramatically it has to be there it's got a yeah you know, largely the anaerobic system. Yeah. Um, yeah, whereas others, they sort of, they use a lot early and then they almost sort of spread it thinly all the way through to the end. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's a little bit pacing. And in terms of, does a different type of athlete need to use that differently in a race? What we found is that the more anaerobically inclined athletes are likely to save some for the end, yeah. for an end spurt. Um, whether or not that's optimal we don't know whether they kind of need to do it like that. We don't really know. Um, you know, my gut is maybe they just need to learn to tolerate to use a little bit more earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't really know. Yeah. And that's going to require training to give them confidence to do that is going to Correct. require training to do that. Yeah. Well. And, yeah. Confidence is the exact word because yeah, you, you do in talking to athletes like that, they're like, Oh, I just wasn't sure I'd be able to get through at that power yep. all the way through. So I kind of left a little bit undone and then I came Came oh, home at the end. We had a classic example the other day. We had one of, one of our senior athletes, I won't name them, who's having a year off and jumped on and did a PB on the, the 2K. And we think he can do better than that. And when we looked at his um, sort of pacing the whole way through, you know, he did come home with a pretty strong power surge at the end mm. um, in, the, in the last sort of 600 metres. And you look at it and go, he didn't, didn't necessarily pace that well, but that was confidence. You know, mm, if he did it again this week, he would have the confidence and the understanding that he can do that and he'd go another couple of seconds quicker. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and on the exact opposite of that, you know, we had another athlete who's very aerobically driven mm. who sort of just did have the confidence to go out yeah. at that level and, you know, just sort of had faith that they wouldn't blow yeah. and sure enough and had absolutely nothing to come home with. yeah and yeah when when he did whine for the line it wasn't there yeah. but you know from a classic textbook point of view you might say that's the perfect pacing strategy um you know you try and lift you try and lift you try and lift and nothing happens you know then you hit the finish line it's like well you couldn't have gone faster than that yeah <laughs> yeah but that uh, again if you're going to do a great job on the 2k you'd need to do really specific prep for each athlete and it would have to look a little different mm, exactly yeah so, yeah, I mean, I guess and the last sort of question to that is, well, you know, the anaerobic capacity, how trainable is it? And we touched on that a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, it's certainly less trainable than the aerobic system. Um, you know, almost every type of training that you do across all sports basically takes your type 2 fibres and turns them into type 1 fibres or type, takes your type 2B, even more explosive fibres, and turns them to type 2A mm. fibres. So... Almost every type of training that you do, so to speak, slows you down in terms of a, a muscle contraction, force yeah. and velocity point of view. Um, so, you know, how trainable is the anaerobic system really then? Um, you know, we certainly know it, it, it obviously is trainable, but not as much as the aerobic system. And I think it differs a lot between athletes. So, you know, you might take a simple example is you take a marathon runner mm. um, and you take a 100 meter sprinter 
and you would obviously think that the 100 meter sprinter is going to adapt better to anaerobic type training than the marathon runner. Um, and we sort of t take that approach a little bit here. And I think a lot of it is just learning your athlete. So, yeah. you know, and I remember a story going back to London um, where there was a, a crew, it was a, um, you know, it was a pair in rowing and they thought oh, they were getting out really slowly out of the blocks. We need to do a whole bunch of anaerobic training to improve that. And they did a whole bunch of anaerobic um, training. I think it was between Lucerne and, and the Olympics. And they saw almost no, I think it was basically no improvement. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, they did, did all the work, but well, it did, obviously didn't really get much bang for their buck. So, you know, often we say, oh, you know, it's a weakness. We need to train your weakness and improve it. But you know, maybe, maybe it's a weakness for a reason because your body just doesn't adapt that well to that sort of stimulus. Um, but I don't think you can ever really um, just guess that. Yeah. So I think you need to test it out and say, oh, you know, this didn't, doesn't really work for this athlete. Um, but also might mean it didn't work at, in the way that we did it at this point in time as opposed to it just doesn't work, blanket rule. Um, yeah. Whereas again, yeah, you might have the opposite athletes who do a little bit of anaerobic training and just eat it up and, and sort of take off with it. So, so there's probably two things there, isn't there? There's, there's, if, you, if you are an anaerobic athlete, in one sense, your anaerobic engine is a bit of a gift and that athlete needs to, to be able to use that properly to deal with the fallout of using that engine, they need to do enough training. But even an aerobically focused athlete whose anaerobic capacity may not shift very much, they're still gonna need to do enough anaerobic training to deal with the fallout of the times they're gonna need to use their anaerobic system in the start to build, to overcome the inertia of the boat and that sort of thing. So it's important for both athletes. Definitely. For, for one, it's important because they need to use their strength. For the other one, they need to make sure that their weakness doesn't undo them. Yeah, exactly. And and I think, and, and even, you know, for, the, for the, this one who has a strong anaerobic capacity, can you make it stronger? Yeah. You know, can you feed the beast, like we say? Can we get them stronger um, in, in something that they're naturally already strong at? Um, but in the testing we've done here, the maximum, or let's call it the minimum amount of anaerobic contribution we've seen is 10%. Yeah. That's still 10%. That's still a lot. So, um, you know, and, and what we've done, we're doing with some of the athletes here that we've tested, now they're, they're off sort of training and then we're going to retest, is, well, you know, let's say 10% of your, your power was from the anaerobic system. Can we increase that raw amount of power? So the percentage may not change because the aerobic power also increases along with it, but mm. can the raw contribution, let's say, in watts, so let's say we had one athlete who produced 30 watts, from the anaerobic system, can we increase that to 35 watts or 40 watts the next time they do a 2K? Or is it going to stay at 30 watts and the only way they're going to get better is the aerobic, the system, aerobic system improving? We don't know, but what I'm pretty sure I do know is that if you don't train it, it will not improve. Yeah, absolutely. So, especially in that athlete. So if, if they're doing, if they're getting 30 watts in the, aerobics, uh, the anaerobic system and doing no anaerobic training, it'll always be 30 watts 30, yeah. and it might actually go to 25 watts. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. I think, yeah, and that's something we're playing with, doing different types of anaerobic training. We haven't really done that much before and, and seeing, well, does it work for this yeah. athlete? And I think, you know, just a footnote to that, that, that one athlete that we've seen who, you know, only uses 10% um, or only contributes uh, anaerobically to 10% of his um, 2K ergo, I guarantee over his lifetime, he hasn't even done 10% of his training at anaerobic oh, uh, it wouldn't be even above. close yeah, so it might only be one percent <laughs> exactly so there's 
Historically and traditionally, there's just not been enough attention paid to it. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Great. So final one, Rocket, which is, which is a really interesting one, I think, is the central fatigue concept. Yeah. Um, which is um, you know, probably one of the least understood areas, I reckon. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not well understood at all. Um, so what are we talking about? What are we talking about? Well, I guess the reason probably why it's not well understood is it's really hard to measure. How do you measure central fatigue? Now, there are ways to measure it in laboratories and, and things like that in yep. very sophisticated ways, but to do it in a day-to-day training environment, it's really, really difficult. Um, so, but what we're talking about is, you know, I guess sort of going a little bit back to that cell excitability side of things is, it's your brain and spinal cord's ability to um, basically gener- you know, generate the muscle fiber recruitment to give you force production and power output. So before when we spoke about the cell excitability, that was more the um, peripheral side of things at the cell itself. Is it, is it ready to accept those signals? Now we're probably talking more about the brain and spinal cord actually delivering those signals. Yeah. Um, and so we know that in you know in longer sports, for example, in say you know a two-hour cycling race, we know that one probably the predominant cause of fatigue is that actually the brain downregulates how much it recruits its muscle fibers, and so force generation and power drops off, and you know rate of perceived mm-hmm. exertion increases. And it's, it's less to do what's going on within the muscles, you know, lactate and all those yeah. sort of things that we talk about. It's actually much more to do with the brain not recruiting the muscle fibers to actually contract anymore. Natural protective mechanism. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, when you, when you exercise at a high intensity, um, essentially, you know, your brain is kind of thinking, oh, you know, what's going on here? We're getting well outside of homeostasis, well outside of our natural sort of balance that we like to be in in the body. And, and the brain will do things to sort of limit that. Um, yep. And so, yeah, one of the main things that the brain does is it'll actually down-regulate how much um, sort of muscle fiber it wants to recruit to, to produce force. Um, and so... And you don't have control over that. You have no control over that, as, as bad as that, as that sounds. You can't be tough and stop it from happening. It's exactly. It's just what your brain does. Exactly, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, you can try as absolutely hard as you possibly can uh, and your brain will still make those adjustments. And so, funnily, in rowing, it, it's, it can be a little bit different. In, so in your long, long, long duration events that are obviously a much lower intensity, you see that you start a certain um, amount of um, recruitment and it drops away as, as the body tires. In, in some middle distance events, we've seen in a little bit of research that's out there that almost the opposite happens. So you start the race and you're not actually at 100% recruitment and as your body starts to sort of struggle to maintain force production, the, the recruitment can actually increase throughout. Now, there's not a lot of research on it. Um, you know, I'm sort of was fortunate enough to, to work with, with a student uh, who was doing their PhD on this going back a few years ago. And that's what they found was that they did sort of like a, almost, you know, about a five minute time trial. And mm. you had to do, I think, maybe five of them. And... You didn't know how long, like when you were going to get stopped. I was actually a participant in this study, yeah, and you would do. They figured out what your maximum aerobic power was from yeah. a lab test, and then you would sit on that power basically until exhaustion. And you did it. I think it was five times, and they would just randomly stop you at either 10, tw- you know, 20, 40, 60, 80 percent through, um, and they would do some testing to see how much of the fatigue was from central system and how much was from the peripheral system, and they found that as it progressed, you were actually getting more central um, 
uh, sort of uh, recruitment yeah. as opposed to less. So but what that tells you is that from the beginning of the race, you're not at 100%. Yeah. So from the very first stroke, your body, your brain is already down-regulating how much yeah, it yeah. sort of wants to, it wants to go. So, um, it's it's very Short complex. Changing you before you even get going. Exactly, and yeah, you know, it's not it's not really understood very well. But actually, just this year, in March, there was a study that was um, that was published that looked at quadricep muscle fatigue after a 2,000 meter ergo. Yeah. Uh, and what they found was that actually the, the fatigue of the quadricep muscle specifically um, was explained primarily by central fatigue, not peripheral fatigue. And you know, I won't get into all the ways that they actually measure that, but that's sort of what they determined, yeah. which it actually surprised me a little bit. Um, yeah. I know in the longer duration events that's, that is true, and, and there's a fair amount of research on the longer stuff, but it's not been done in rowing before, and it's not been done much in, in those middle distance events that to say that, oh, actually, you know, we, we've always really assumed that it was peripheral fatigue that was the main driver of fatigue in these shorter events. But you know, this one study is showing that, well, actually, the primary um, fatigue was more this, you know, the central nervous system and you know, the brain and spinal cord. So that prompts the question, what can be done about it? Well, really good question. Mm. Not, well, not easy to answer. Yeah. Um, I guess probably the most obvious thing that, that you could say is to use sort of stimulants like caffeine as an example. So, um, you know, what we know from the research in caffeine is that you might do some sort of performance trial, it might be a 2K ergo, and, uh, you know, your power is higher, things like lactate are higher, your max heart rate might, might get higher, probably not, but, um, you know, some of those markers of intensity are higher, um, and, you know, you haven't necessarily tried any harder, you know, why has have we seen that increase in performance? And, and a big part of that is it stimulates the central nervous system to, I guess, allow itself to work harder. Yeah, right. The, well, the, other, the other thing might just be training. Yeah. Um, you know, and presumably higher intensity training where you're training, you know, the, that system, you know, your central nervous system to operate at that intensity that's specific to racing um, that, you know, it teaches the central nervous system to stay activated and, and things like that and not overreact yeah exactly mm. yeah and so again it's i'm not sure if it's done you know i should probably do a little bit of a search on that to see if there's any research on how training can affect central fatigue mm. um but yeah it'd be really 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 interesting to see well again that might be an area that down the track we can actually get some discussion with some experts on mm, because absolutely. It's, it's clearly it's clearly an important part and it's not just a simple matter of toughening up no i think there's an element of the the mindset side of things not to be tough but the mindset side of things about being able to recruit efficiently like we spoke about with sam lock getting to that point there's an element of the mechanism around that sort of thing and there is naturally your how accustomed you are to the activity that you're doing is going to help you, you would say logically some of these things, but what are the other things that can, that can have an impact on central fatigue? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think potentially one thing that might be important is, is the taper period. So yeah. I think, you know, a big part of freshening up for, for racing is to allow, and, and a big thing that we see in measuring some heart rate variability stuff, which is measuring the autonomic nervous system, um, is that we see a big freshening up, let's say, of the autonomic nervous system coming into racing. And if that system is nice and fresh, you know, presumably you're going to get much better muscle recruitment uh, yeah. during racing. Um, you know, you might still find, you know, you push yourself as hard as you can when you come to race. But 
if you're completely flogged from all the training you're doing and that system is not you know fresh and ready to fire mm. you, can try, you can try as hard as you can but you're just not going to get the muscle recruitment yeah the brain's as you say going to down regulate because it's in protective mode versus and it's a bit like being in an adaptive state you know yeah there's there's some elements around where less is more with this sort of stuff mm. at times definitely yeah well more to explore there i reckon absolutely uh, as, as we go down the track so, Rodney, that just about covers our, our key points um, for today. I mean, it's been a pretty science-heavy sort of one and, and it's, it's taken us a little while to get through, but I think there's some branches that we'll explore off this um, as we go forward. Um, just as we wrap things up here, um, we had a couple of uh, people that have asked some questions on some of the other um, podcasts that we've put out so far. One of the interesting ones that came back from David Yates who's one of the national selectors for many, many years, for nearly 20 years, I think, um, and a very accomplished coach in his own right, and a scientist. Uh, he an tried to answer the question around what should we call power strokes, as we, we discussed uh, in the yes. last training session. And, and his thought from his knowledge of physics was that they should be called impulse strokes in terms of um, what they actually do in terms of the, the, the true mechanism as to how it works. So how does that sit with you, Rodney? I like that, impulse yeah. strokes. It's, it's got a bit of a snap to it. It's not yeah. bad. I don't know if it'll catch on completely, but... Um, Power stroke certainly sounds cooler, but it just, it's always irked me. It's mislabeled. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So good Thanks on you, Yatesy, for uh, chipping that one in and love to hear a little bit more on that sort of stuff. And the other one that we've received a fair bit of feedback on is uh, questions around the use of the power meters and the, the specifics around some of the individual uh, bits and pieces to do with the power meters. And we undertake to actually give you a, probably a more thorough review of each one uh, over the next month or two as we get through a little bit more. I know there's a lot of people out there looking to make purchases at the moment and want to understand a little bit more about what might suit their needs because they do, as we identified, um, have very different um, you know, needs to suit. So uh, we'll touch on that a little bit more as we go down the track. Absolutely, yeah. We should be ramping it up a little bit as the uh, as our PhD student is set to arrive in the country in about a month, I think. Yeah, so very exciting. Hoping for her to get here and get stuck into it, get her hands dirty. Very good. Well, Ronnie, thanks for today. And uh, we'll catch up with you again very soon. Yeah, thanks, BT.